Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. A very happy Mark Pack, of course, after the Somerton and Froome by-election win, but also a slightly nervous Mark Pack because armed ready with a metaphorical bucket of cold water to douse Lib Dem excitement is Professor Tim Bale. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hello, Mark. Nice to be here once again. Now, let's kick off with a great quote from for Professor Sir John Curtis. The Liberal Democrats have been making the spectacular seem routine which I suspect will be appearing on mugs and T-shirts all over Liberal Democrat Conference this autumn. But with your bucket of cold water at the ready, how happy do you reckon us Lib Dems should be about the Somerton and Froome result and that trio of by-elections more generally? Well, actually, I'm not going to pour a bucket of cold water over anything. I, I do think it was a remarkable result for the Liberal Democrats in the sense that it's all very easy to pull off one or two by-election victories, but to pull off so many mm. in relatively quick succession in seats which, OK, you know, got some Liberal Democrat heritage, some of Turner and Froome, but, you know, with very big Conservative majority is, I think, really quite remarkable. And I think also that it bodes well for the general election in the sense that I think we're seeing in Somerton and Froome, but also actually, you know, we saw in Selby and Ainsty, where Labour did well, a degree of tactical voting that we probably haven't seen since 1997. I mean, not necessarily in those individual seats, but I think there are signs from those individual seats that actually are harbingers for what's to come. Yeah, I think there's an interesting difference the which you might expect politicians to try to make between a low share of the vote, which is a bad sign, and a low share of the vote, which is a good sign. But I think, as you say, there is a legitimate argument to make that the way the Lib Dem vote really polarises between being you know, at deposit losing territory or being a storming win is... Pretty good under first past the face for the Liberal Democrats. Also, you know, perhaps even better news for people who are not so much pro or anti Lib Dem or Labour, but who definitely want to see the Conservatives defeated. And, and it strikes me there's an interesting contrast here with council by-elections. So there'll be some people listening to this who feel that parliamentary by-elections you shouldn't read too much into. who will now be pouring, pulling their hair out. Now I'm throwing council by-elections into the mix. But I think in council by-elections, we have seen a broader Lib Dem recovery outside of our areas of strength. So you do see Lib Dems now, in a way you didn't a few years ago, finishing third or fourth in a by-election, but with 10 or 15 or even 20% of the vote. And that is an important part of the recovery. So I think what we're seeing in the parliamentary by-elections is, as you say, really heavy tactical voting, which, although obviously I would encourage everyone to vote Liberal Democrat everywhere, nonetheless, overall, more tactical voting is most likely to help mean at least more Liberal Democrat MPs at the next election, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And and the advantage for the Liberal Democrats and to some extent Labour as well, and we've discussed this before, is actually they're not really in competition with each other in you know all but a handful of seats. So as long as voters can be, if you like, educated, guided towards realisation of who finished second last time around, and that's not always as easy as some people think, then both of those parties, and obviously the Liberal Democrats included, should be able to take advantage of that. Yeah, and I, I think the what's happened in several of the by-elections, of course, is, is Liberal Democrats coming from third. But I think those have all been fairly clear that the Liberal Democrats are the plausible challenges in those. And certainly for the general election, I think there are 
a small number, but it is a pretty small number of seats where the Lib Dems are third, where there might be a bit of a mm-hmm. argument with Labour over who is best placed to win. But it feels like those are actually much less than in 97. And I do wonder if this is... I think there are two things that have changed since 97, which probably should be more worrying for the Tories when it comes to tactical voting. One is the rise of tactical voting websites and the like. You know, that there's just more tactical voting information more readily available. But the other is that the political geography is much clearer. That, you know, in 97, we still had the vestiges of lots of seats that had been, say, Labour versus Alliance fights and so on. But now, as your golden halo report from a couple of years ago showed, there aren't very many seats where it's no. there's that much up for debate, are there? No, no, very few. And the other thing that your remark about, you know, geography prompts me to think about is perhaps the declining force of Brexit in the electorate's choices. And certainly in the Southwest, I think, you know, that could make a very big difference to the Liberal Democrats in the sense that, you know, it was something of a stronghold for the party, obviously disrupted in part by going into coalition, but also by Brexit, I think. And and I think if if Brexit is waning as a factor in people's political calculus, then presumably that will help the Liberal Democrats in, in those areas. I mean, I don't want to give people the impression that it's all about Devon and Cornwall and Somerset for the, for the Lib Dems, clearly, because quite a lot of the seats they're hoping to pick up will be much nearer London, you know, in the home counties. But nevertheless, it's no bad thing, I think, for the Liberal Democrats that and Brexit does appear to be to be waning. And of course, there is some hostility to Brexit as well. So a combination of, of, of people who voted leave not caring so much about it now and people who voted remain still caring about it in some ways could be quite good for the Lib Dems. Yeah, I wonder about that waning Brexit point, because it's I mean, it's certainly true that if you ask people what issues are most important to them, Brexit is way down the list compared mm-hmm. to a few years ago. But and, and it's also true that, you know, for example, my experience of canvassing voters and people saying, oh, well, I, you know, might quite like you, but I really disagree with you on Brexit. No way I can vote for you. That has definitely faded. But I think the reason it's faded is, as you say, probably partly because Brexit is lower down their list of concerns. But also there's a decent chunk of people who had voted Lib Dem in the past, voted Leave, say, in the referendum, but who are now are at least not happy with how Brexit is going. And so it's it's not so much that they're reacting to hearing the Lib Dems talk a bit less about Europe than we did a, a couple of years ago, but they're also, they're not as strong in their own view and therefore it's, well, okay, I like all the other stuff you're doing. Maybe if I stop to think about it, I still disagree with you on Brexit, but you know what, my option hasn't turned out great. It's a lot easier for them to warm to us, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point, actually. I mean, it's complex, isn't it? You're right. You know, for some people, it's just, you know, disappeared off the horizon, if you like. And and for some people, you know, they don't care as much about it as they used to. And even if they did used to care about it and actually voted for Brexit are now a little bit disappointed with how it's going. So, yeah, I I think broadly speaking, you're right there. And so let's think about the Labour Party, because I think it is a more mixed picture for them. You know, in, in the sense that for the Lib Dems, it was fought one, one, one. Obviously, huge thanks to our teams in the other two seats, but it was very much Somerton Froome was the one we were trying to win. But with Labour, it was tried to win two, only one, one of the two. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Labour should have spent the last week also celebrating what happened in Selby and Ainsty and have ended up 
you know, talking obsessively about the, you know, the loss of Uxbridge by 500 votes and, you know, what implications that has for them in terms of, for example, environmental policy, etc. But I think if you look at Selby and Ainsley, that has to be an incredibly encouraging result for the Labour Party. I mean, to overturn that scale of um, conservative majority in a seat that in some ways, you know, you could say, well, they had really no right to win. And it's not as if it was a kind of red wall seat that they once had and, you know, should be um, capable of, of winning. I mean, I think, you know, had that by-election been fought on its own or together just with Somerton and Froome, people would have been, you know, wildly happy at Labour Party HQ. And I, I think in, in some ways it's slightly misleading to focus so much on on Uxbridge as people have, because I think taken together, Somerton and Froome and Selwyn Enstey are important because they do bear out that opinion polls nationally seem to be fairly accurate. You know, they're putting the Conservatives behind by about 18 points. Mm. Um, and uh, the results in those two constituencies would suggest that, you know, well, actually, that's that's about right. You know, and put that together with what we've already said about tactical voting. And I think, you know, Labour should be pretty happy um, with with what happened. But of course, this is a Labour Party, you know, very scared, very insecure about their lead, very worried about Rishi Sunak being able to, you know, create perhaps green politics as a kind of a wedge issue as he's trying to do with immigration as well. And, and therefore, you know, agonising about what the Uxbridge result means for them going forward. I mean, I think it probably does illustrate, you know, the degree, and lots of people have said this, to which Labour's lead is, you know, a little bit fragile. Um, and, you know, it does illustrate uh, the fact that, uh, you know, it, it's possible that there are some issues in which they're going to have um, trouble with, uh, you know, in the run-up to the election. Uh, but uh, I really think Labour should have, you know, well, or now, should be spending most of their time thinking about how actually they're going to be able to fend off um, those attacks rather than necessarily thinking, well, we've got to change our policy to make it more like the Conservatives in order to um, bomb-proof it. That's not necessarily the way you go. The way you go is actually thinking, well, yeah, okay, it's vulnerable in this respect, but we could make an argument that actually makes it more robust in another. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one lie in the ointment, which it really surprises me. I've not heard Conservative commentators sort of try to make an argument out of about Selby for the from the Labour Party point of view, is that Labour won the seat in 97, 01 and 05. So there was a Labour MP in the previous mm. Selby constituency, mm. albeit under yeah, somewhat yeah. different boundaries, but until 2010. So it's not quite as unprecedented as it as as it might sound. And, and it, it does I mean, I am perennially puzzled at the spin that other parties put on on elections, which maybe is a comment on my on my yeah. judgment rather than the quality of their spin. But surely the Tories have should have been all over the media saying, well, look, you know, a decade and a half ago, this place had a Labour MP. This is not a historic. Now, I think it it was a pretty impressive history making sort of swing for the Labour Party. Obviously, not quite as impressive as the Lib Dems in Somerton and Froome reducing the Tories to their worst share in their con that constituency in any election since 1832, before yeah. Queen Victoria was on the throne. And, but, a, and a swing that was five points higher. Absolutely. Indeed. But yeah, exactly. You know, but but I, I, why, why, why psychologically do you think the Tories have, react, have not reacted in that sense of, well, it was just a Labour seat until 2010, so let's not well, I think I think probably that just has to do with prioritising. I think, to be honest, they just want to forget about Selby and Ainsley because they've got a much better story on Uxbridge. On Uxbridge. Uh, yeah, I, I really don't think, you know, they want to, to focus on the seat that they lost. They want to focus on the yeah. seat um, that they won. But I, I mean, you, you do make a very good point there in, in some ways that, 
that actually, you know, there are many seats which, you know, people assume have always been Conservative or have always been Labour. But actually, when you look, <laughs> and that includes actually some of those so-called red wall mm. seats that aren't, you know, technically speaking, yeah. perhaps red wall, you know, the, the, the people who don't look at the electoral history like you do, wouldn't be aware, have until fairly recently, often elected an MP from the other party. So you mentioned, you know, the Tories, I think quite rightly, yes, wanting to focus on the Uxbridge result. And I guess the straightforward story here is ULES is an unpopular policy, which would particularly affect people in the Uxbridge constituency. And therefore, off the back of that, the Tories pulled off a relatively surprise election win. And I think the story probably is fairly close to being as straightforward as that, isn't it? Is, is it maybe highlight something about the brittleness of Labour's popularity that one adverse issue like that could knock their campaign off a winning run but mm. is it just you les and we shouldn't really draw very much in terms of at least for outside london meant very much more conclusion from it well one qualification there is of course it, it depended on people thinking that they were going to pay a higher charge and of course mm. we know that actually it's only a small minority mm. of people who end up paying that charge and that to some extent i think will mean that you know when the charge comes in and people realise actually that it wasn't as bad as they all thought it would be. Perhaps it won't be quite such a big issue in other outer London suburbs. And that's obviously something that is worrying Labour, that it might spread from Uxbridge to, to other places where Labour MPs sit or maybe candidates are, are hoping to win. I mean, I think as far as, you know, whether it has any kind of wider implications, that that I think prompts two thoughts. One is well, you know, did Labour fight this Tory attack in the best way that they could? You know, was it a good mm. idea to start trying to distance themselves from Sadiq Khan's policy to suggest somehow they wanted it paused, you know, or would it have been better, as some people have suggested, simply to to back the policy and mount a fairly robust defence of or, it? Or indeed to, to caveat support from it, but from day one, the way yeah. it was certainly portrayed was that the Labour candidate U-turn partway through the election, yeah. which uh, is I, I which is probably the worst of all possible ways yes, of, of uh, dealing with something like that, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think that's absolutely right. But also, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk of this as a, an environmental measure, and to some extent it is an environmental or a green measure, but it is also a public health measure. And I think it might have been possible for Labour, had they thought about it more carefully, to actually defend it on those grounds, on the grounds that, you know, we've seen um, asthma campaigners, for example, defend it over the weekend. You know, Labour could have made a choice there and perhaps minimised some of the damage that was done and might also have picked up some people who didn't otherwise vote for Labour because actually they were rather disappointed at Labour's mealy-mouthed <laughs> rejection or at least, you know, fudging of, of the policy. Um, I, I wonder, though, if there's a broader point there as well, that one of the mistakes that you can make in politics is to assume that people who disagree with you on a policy are, as it were, beyond redemption, rather than to take at face value concerns that they express and say, well, let's engage with them. And you see this on Europe with some of the most enthusiastic pro-European campaigners sometimes making the mistake of thinking, well, if you're for Brexit, you must be racist. You see it with housing where some of, you know, housing campaigners unfortunately take the view that if you object to any house anywhere, your reasons must be insincere and you're really an imbious to heart. And I think there was something, I wonder if they made a similar mistake with you, Les, in that there are 
you know, legitimate questions about the speed with which, for example, public transport improvements in outer London will come in. This, if you compare you, Les, with Ken Livingstone's introduction of the congestion charge when he became the first mayor of London in 2000, which is probably the classic sort of case study of a politician introducing a really potentially really controversial policy in a way that turned out to be both good policy but also politically very successful for them you know it, it's and if you see how often congestion charge campaigns have failed elsewhere it's really striking how successful that was in 2000 and I think part of the reason was you could immediately see the benefits you had the both the less congestion meaning less delays on the buses but you had the improved bus service it felt like immediately you could and in a way that with you Les, it's just you know, there's, you'll obviously expect me to talk up the proposals that, you know, Caroline and Hina, the two Lib Dem members of the London Assembly made, but, you know, other plenty of other people have made proposals as well as to how to have a better scrappage scheme, how to invest more in public transport. And, so and it just seems like until halfway through the parliamentary by-election, Labour's mindset was these are all sort of pro-car, anti-environment extremists who we're going to, you know, close our ears to as opposed to okay, what what of these concerns can we unpick and can we actually find a good way to deal with? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually. And I, I think, you know, that that prompts two thoughts, really. One is, you know, we, we get used to urging politicians to look at policy disasters. Perhaps they also need to look at policy <laughs> successes sometimes. And, a, a shorter uh, list, a cynic might yeah, add, and therefore learn, quite easy to Yeah, do. or maybe <laughs> and learn from them. But, but also, actually, I, I think in terms of, you know, labour, it would have been, I think, more sensible for them to think about the kind of distributional consequences mm. of the the ULES scheme and actually talk about, you know, some of the things that you've spoken about, but also, you know, at, at communicating that they did understand that in a cost of living crisis, it was going to be quite difficult for some people and finding ways of, you know, mitigating mm. the, the problems that those people were going to experience and also i mean a more more general sort of educational campaign about exactly how many and who was going to have to pay this because you know it's clear that there, there are very exaggerated ideas about you know how many people this is going to effect but i think ultimately in some ways what we have here is a, a kind of contradiction between the kind of incentives of the mayor in terms of his re-election to get this done and to get this done quickly <laughs> and you know the the incentives of the labor leadership which are obviously focused on a, a general election coming rather rather later and indeed you know getting it done and getting it done quickly would have fitted with a general election timetable as well it was the by-election coming along in the middle of this year that really messed yeah, messed up yeah. Labour's timing if that was indeed the thinking on it. But I guess it's also perhaps surprising that Labour hasn't worked out what to do on this before the campaign itself. Because if you think how, and certainly in the couple of days after the election, with the coincidence of timing of Labour's national sort of policy uh, weekend, where they seem to have been shedding potentially potential attack lines from the Tories over their policies left, right and centre... They definitely seem to be in the mindset of we want to present as small a target to our opponents mm. as possible. And at least the leadership is happy to shed a lot of long-standing Labour policies yeah. along the way to do that, including over the two-child cap on welfare, which is which is you know an issue that a lot of people in Labour feel remark you know very passionately and personally about. And so if you're if you're willing to do all of that, how did they not sit down? you know, months ago and think, 
well, okay, you know, if we're going to drop you, Les, how do we how do we drop yeah. our support for you, yeah. Les, in a dignity? It's like they were caught out by surprise by what they discovered during the campaign on the doorsteps. Yes, that's maybe in a constituency poll and so on as well. Mm, that, that's interesting. I mean, maybe there was a degree of complacency there. Mm. You know, maybe they thought that yeah. Boris Johnson was a disaster. Mm. Um, people of Arxbridge and Ruslip, you know, really didn't want another Tory MP. You know, they're 18, 20 points ahead in the opinion polls. This wouldn't really take much of a swing to come to Labour. You know, people have been predicting this seat would go Labour at the next election anyway. And they just... Yeah, they just didn't really realise quite how um, strongly people were feeling about that particular issue. But I mean, it doesn't really bode very well, I think, for a Labour government if on the one hand they say, well, they're all about devolution and local mayors making their own decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, as soon as they're confronted with the you know, reality of that, which is doing things that, you know, a Labour leader, possibly a Labour prime minister doesn't like, um, you know, they, they run scared. Yeah, I guess the other... The other possibility, and this is a, a bit of a long shot possibility, but we might discover this, is that maybe Keir Starmer will turn out to be a bit like Rishi Sunak, as in not actually that good at electoral politics. Because I think now it's obvious to look at Rishi Sunak and think, well, you know what, for all of his, you know, stellar, you know, an impressively speedy political progression and through his, his career, he... The first time he had to fight a really tough election, in a way, was a leadership election against Liz Truss, where he lost to Liz Truss of all people. And so he, you know, you sort of think, is he? He's not really got that election fighting instinct and touch about him. And Keir Starmer, similarly, mm. has not yet had to fight a really sort of intense, difficult, close, close run election. You know, he's, you know, he he got selected for a relatively safe seat, as with Rishi Sunak, perhaps the toughest election he had fought was his initial selection for a safe seat. But, you know, he got selected for what had become a fairly safe seat for Labour. I think the leadership election in the end was relatively straightforward in that he was up against a pretty weak candidate. But unlike Rishi Sunak, at least he managed to <laughs> triumph over that weekend. But he's not, maybe it will turn out he's not a very good election fighting leader. Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I think obviously he has some pretty good, pretty tough people around him. And I mean, I guess the same is true for Rishi Sunak with someone like Isaac Levido. So we can't underestimate him. But, you know, perhaps you're right on a personal level. Although, of course, I I mean, I I don't think that this by-election was really a kind of referendum on Keir Starmer himself. I mean, he didn't feature massively in the campaign. Obviously, he visited. Yes. But uh, would would a good lead would wouldn't a leader really on their game have spotted the ULES issue coming down the track and have ensured that whatever decision it would have been, but the Labour would have got its act together rather than mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, not everyone can have Mark Pack as their... Uh, their I've, I've made more than enough mistakes. President. I've made more than enough mistakes. Um, no, I mean, I think some of the people around Keir Starmer probably, as you quite rightly say, should have woken up to that issue earlier. And then having not woken up to that issue earlier, should have thought about the consequences of flip-flopping and fudging on it. And it might have been best having realised too late, you know, that this was going to play quite badly instead of, you know, trying to to U-turn on it or, you know, half U-turn on it, actually just gone in and, and as I say, defended it more yeah. robustly on, yeah. on public health grounds. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of the 
in my views, original Hartlepool by-election. So the one, mm. not the last one, but the one before, which was a Labour-held seat at the time, but during a Labour government and the Lib Dem with, with the challengers. And we were making great play over threats to a local hospital. And Labour effectively U-turned on the issue during the campaign, as I recall, by prompt, you know, getting the health secretary to promise to, you know, the, to keep the hospital open. Mm. And in fact, to his credit, the Labour MP who then, the, the Labour candidate who then won became an MP, became a minister, when then the Labour government didn't keep to its promise, did sort of quit as a minister and so on. But mm. during the camp, so in a way, during the campaign, Labour U-turned, but they U-turned in the most successful way possible, which is to say, <laughs> you've got these concerns, we've listened to these concerns, we promise it's all mm. going to be good. Yeah, I mean, the only person who could have done that effectively for Labour in Uxbridge mm. was Sadiq Khan, mm. he wasn't going to do it. So. Yeah, yeah, and that's, it, it feels to me like there's a really interesting long read still to be written, the, the sort of by a Tim Shipman type character, but with the right London contacts as to quite what happened there. But well, let's move on from sort of speculating about what, what happened between Keir Starmer and Sadiq Khan and so on and think about by-elections more generally, because I think there's an interesting contrast between the predictive power of by-elections if you look at the seat or if you look at the country as a whole, which mm. is there's a fair degree of churn amongst all parties of if you win a seat at by-election, whether that ends up being a seat the party holds for years and years and years. That's happened in lots of Lib Dem cases, for example, or if it ends up being a seat which then reverts back to the previous party and whoever won the by-election doesn't trouble the scorers for a long time to come in the constituency. So as a sort of seat-by-seat -seat measure, by-elections can be quite a noisy signal. But I'm struck that both Will Jennings and I'm just looking for Paul his Whiteley. name Paul here. Whiteley. Paul Whiteley, yes. Both Will and Paul, apologies, Paul, for, uh, have separately done bits of analysis of looking at the pattern of by-elections in a parliament versus what then the subsequent general election result is. And to my pleasant relief, as it were, they seem to be pretty predictive. And yeah, so I do. think we've now had quite a lot of by-elections, which do seem to point quite strongly towards the Tories being voted out of power, you know, at the next election. How much sort of emphasis do you think it's worth placing on that predictive power of elections? And I'll include links to both Will and Paul's research in the show notes so people can go, go read it themselves. But yeah, but how much weight would you put on that? Well, I mean, in as much as both of them are very well-respected, you know, analysts, both very good with the numbers, I, I would place actually quite a lot of faith in it. I mean, the correlations are reasonably strong there. You know, there's no certainty there. It's not because of the correlation of one, but I mean, it's 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 pretty good. So, you know, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, you know, I, I they would be one of the factors that was leading me to, to bet on a Labour victory rather than a Conservative victory. I mean, I, I think you're right. And we can all remember, of course, going into the in 1997 election you know there were a whole bunch of by-elections that seemed to be giving the, the same signal I mean having said that I think you know I, I've already talked about this in, in something I wrote which was that you know if you look at what happened to John Major for example he lost a couple of by-elections to Labour and a couple of by-elections to the Liberal Democrats in the run-up to 1992 and yet he managed to pull off a win there so Obviously, there were there were <laughs> there were fewer by elections to be able to to you know produce a prediction on back then. But you know they're they're not definitive, but you know they're indicative certainly. And I think they're indicative 
in a, another helpful way of just they bring to life quite what the national polling figures are showing, because I think there is still a real slight air of disbelief over how people view the Tory figures in the voting intention polls at the moment, because basically most of the time, most pollsters have Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party doing as badly or worse than Michael Foote's Labour Party did in 1983, which is your classic disastrous landslide defeat that nearly destroyed a party. You know, that that is your, you know, it, 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 if you're doing a list of, of electoral catastrophes, probably 1983 for Labour is number one. I guess Lib Dems in 2015 would be number two in your list. And, you know, so it, it that, that's a, it's a remarkably bad yardstick to be quite often slipping below for the Tories. But I don't think there has really been that widespread understanding of just quite how low those figures are in a way that something like the Selby result and the Somerton and Froome result does you know when you can then say oh well this is the lowest Tory share of vote in Somerton and Froome since the 1832 election and so on that brings it to life in a way that seeing a number that's a 23 25 doesn't quite have the same meaning yeah I think that's that's a really good point actually and you know you have to ask yourself why that might be the case and I think that may be to do with the fact that neither Keir Starmer nor, if you'll forgive me, Ed Davey has really kind of set the world alight mm. in the way that, say, the combination of Tony Blair and, and Paddy Ashdown did in, in the 1990s. Mm. And so, you know, absent that, people look at a poll lead of, you know, 20 percent and, and and don't quite believe it. Whereas I think if, you know, we, we, we had a sort of Ashdown-Blair combination, probably people would believe it mm. a little bit more. But I mean, you will remember, Mark, as do I in 1997, where Labour had an astronomical lead, but mm. still people couldn't actually believe until, you know, they saw those BBC yeah. graphics of all those Conservative seats blowing up. Yeah, there's a fantastic... Yeah. I would really recommend to listeners to go and re-watch the BBC election night coverage from 97 because there's this fantastic period of about an hour mm. between the TV show starting and the first results coming in where you've got a series of Conservative politicians saying, yeah, they think they're going to lose, but that it's not going to be a landslide, that they were hearing better things on the doorstep. And I think at that period of time is probably the peak period of time for politician honesty. Because, <laughs> you know, the polls have closed, so there's no incentive to sort of spin your side. And the re reality, you know, is coming along. And so reality will, you know, what people are arguing over tomorrow is going to be decided by reality. So you've yeah. got this little window where it's safe to say what you really think. And so I think those those Tories will have been absolutely genuine mm, in mm. terms of thinking, yeah, we know we're going to lose, but we're not expecting a landslide. We heard better stuff on the doorstep. And of course, they were completely wrong. It was, yeah. a, you know, yeah. it was it was a massive yeah. landslide. So yeah. it's easy to fool oneself about what one, you know, what you sort of think you're hearing. Yeah. And it's easy to also, as you say, yeah, look at the numbers and think, oh, well, it won't quite really be like that. No, of course, no. you know, you could you've kindly not made the point, but you could reasonably make the point that that was something maybe that affected many Lib Dems in the round to 2015. You're saying, well, look, if you're on 8% in the polls, how are you going to distribute that vote around the country to get no more than 8% in total that's going to give you a decent number of MPs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, the other thing about by-elections, you know, and you're pointing to the importance of them in other ways, is, of course, what they do to parties internally. Mm. And I do think that, you know, many Conservative MPs will be looking at the result in Selby and Ainsty, to be honest, rather more than in, in Uxbridge. Some will take hope from what's going on in Uxbridge, but... 
I think many of them will be looking at uh, that result and Somerton and Froome as well and thinking, well, it, it you know really could be over now. If you know we can lose a twenty thousand odd majority, then you know my seat is in trouble, and and that will mean possibly even more people deciding that they're going to retire before the end of you know before the next election. And, you know, it won't do morale very much good. I mean, I think there is quite a lot of kind of whistling in the dark over Uxbridge, to be honest, within the Conservative Party. And you could also argue that in some ways, um, what happened in Uxbridge might be quite good for Keir Starmer internally, because it will reinforce his message, you know, of caution, credibility, et cetera, et cetera. So while it's a disappointing loss for him in some ways, and it might even stall the the Labour Party's, you know, progress in the polls, who knows? But I, I think in terms of the sort of internal messaging, it might not be such a bad thing for him. You know, whether they start rowing back as the government seemed to do on on some of this environmental policy is, a, is another matter. I mean, I think that would be an extremely poor lookout, both for Labour and indeed, you know, for for the UK and indeed the planet. Yeah, I, Patrick Maguire from the Times has made this point about how paradoxically that losing Uxbridge right. may turn out to be good for Keir Starmer, which I think probably is to some extent true. But surely if Labour had won both, his standing in the Labour Party would be mm. you know, even higher. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I think in saying that, in saying yeah. that, I'm, I'm probably, you know, trying to make the best of a bad job for Keir Starmer <laughs> in that sense. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right to, to win that as well as Selby and Ainsty. Yeah. You know, they would have been on a roll. It would have been, you know, really. Yeah. I mean, obviously, at some, you know, at, at some point, I'll roll out the argument, therefore, that the Lib Dem result in 2015 was actually quite good because it allowed us <laughs> to reorientate the basis of our support to a more durable, long-term basis. <laughs> but I think, to be fair to Patrick, his argument does have rather more merit, you know, as a sort of unexpected side effect, maybe. Is yeah, the way yeah, of it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, I, again... to be fair to Keir Starmer, yeah. you know, to sort of give him what I was saying earlier... He does seem to have seized on that potential silver lining and tried to make the full use of it. In, and, and, you know, it, it, it's very much immediately part of the Labour policy debate now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. But I do think Labour does need to be a little bit careful. And this comes back to, you know, the point you were making about, you know, what they're doing to try and make themselves as small a target as possible. That in kind of following that, I don't know, Linton Crosby playbook, you know, the getting the barnacles off the mm. boat, you know, well, you don't want to scrape <laughs> scrape a hole in the bottom of the boat <laughs> by by getting rid of policies that are to some people quite inspiring and a reason to vote Labour. Um, mm. I think you know it, it, in a close election, I think activists can matter, and I think people's willingness to go out on the doorstep, particularly maybe if it's an autumn or winter election, you know, will depend slightly on whether they, you know, they they think that the Labour offer is inspiring enough. Now, I think most Labour activists will, you know, do it anyway, because they're so desperate for a Labour government. But, you know, if I think you need to be careful, you don't completely demotivate people. And um, I wonder if in that extent... I wonder if to that extent Labour is missing now a bit of the old New Labour playbook. So I see a lot of what they're doing does seem to be to rerun the New Labour playbook. Mm. But one thing that New Labour had in 97 was some sort of properly Labour policies still made the cut. And so although Labour policy changed a lot during Tony Blair's time as leader of the opposition... When it came to the election, they were promising a windfall tax in order to fund better training and education opportunities for young people. They were promising to introduce a national minimum wage. So if you were, let's say, a socialist, 
you might have been unhappy or uneasy about the direction Labour was going under Tony Blair, but you could also campaign sort of full out in the 97 election, knowing that some things very dear to your heart would happen. And it doesn't seem like the new Labour sort of encore that we're, we're getting now mm. has that as part of what they're trying to achieve. It, it's not yeah, it's yeah, at least I, very well hidden, I think, what the equivalent of introducing the national minimum wage would yeah. be for a Starmer election manifesto. Yeah, yeah. What's going to be on a pledge card mm. that's going to make people think, yeah. oh, yeah, this is going to be quite different. And, you know, for the activists thinking, yeah. yes, this is what I would regard as kind of signature labour. I think that's a very good point yeah. you've made there. Yeah, so they're going to have to come up with, I think, a, a, a few things. And at the moment, the emphasis seems to be on you know, getting rid of stuff, jettisoning stuff, rather than actually thinking about, well, what, you know, might actually inspire people and make people think that, you know, there is a big difference between, you know, what we've had and what we're going to get. Mm. And I think the risk with that is, and this is the point actually that Tony Blair has sort of made, I think very eloquently, and on this at least he's definitely right, is that the way people judge your policy platform is not, as it were, scoring each policy individually and coming up with a total score it's what does the overall impression leave? And that's why you can have a policy platform that has lots of popular individual policies within it that overall fails because mm. it's not getting the right overall message. And I, you know, I, what I'm sure lots of Lib Dems will be saying about the Labour Party in the run up to the election is it just looks like, you know, they'll drop anything. And in a way, if having an, a not particularly policy popular policy that you stick with at least allows you to communicate some sense of there are things that we really believe in. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure there are some Labour people who argue that if you can't, you know, be brave when you've got a 20% uh, opinion poll lead, you know, when can you be? But on the other hand, you can totally understand Labour being scarred in some Mm. way, just as they were in 1992 and Mm. certainly have been after 2017 Mm. and uh, 2019. And, you know, therefore playing it the way that they're playing it. Yeah, and I think you see a, a sort of a fainter echo of that within the Liberal Democrats. You know, the late Labour's basic experience of general elections is they lose two out of three. And therefore being scarred by that is a very reasonable, if anything, I guess my critique from outside would be there are too many occasions where they seem to forget that they actually lose two out of three and what might be a sensible way to react to that. So being scarred by that is definitely a a sensible reaction. But you also see a little bit within the Lib Dems in the sense that if you listen to a debate over a controversial policy, say at conference, and you categorise the speakers by they're really involved in running election campaigns or not, you see a similar divide in that sense often Mm. open up where the more that somebody is involved in running election campaign, the more concerned they are about what people outside the party might think about the policy. Mm-hmm. So that's a very, you know, that's a classic tension, which, of course, in different ways you've documented in your mm-hmm. research on sort of political party membership. But before we sort of get too distracted once again by Labour and the Tories, let's let's come back to the Liberal Democrats, because, I, you know, one of the things that you and some of your colleagues did earlier this parliament was come up with this really nice idea of an emerging golden halo Mm. and i'll include a link to that report Mm. that you you and your colleagues produced in the show Mm. notes and that sort of sense of a new emerging basis of lib dem support particularly in the home counties and it sort of looked a bit like a halo around london in the map Mm. we're not quite sure what that makes london but anyway (laughs) but the pattern of by-election wins i mean in a sense has been determined by what seats happen to come up for election but they perhaps suggest 
a more widespread or diffuse opportunity for the Lib Dems, which could be an opportunity or could be a danger. But I just wonder how, having seen those four gains, how you feel your golden halo is looking. Well, I mean, I I think, you know, it looks pretty hopeful because, of course, that was based on the Lib Dems getting a 5% swing, a 10% swing or a 15% swing. And if they get anything like the 29% swing, yeah, they got in. They got in Somerton and Froome, which was where I was born, by the way, just uh, put Oh, in. really? Yeah, I'm from Froome originally. The, uh, I mean, I think you have pointed to a danger, and I know this is something that you're concerned about and, and many Liberal Democrats will be concerned about, because I think in 2019, it was undoubtedly the case that the Liberal Democrats were in some ways too buoyed up by some early polling, mm. uh, you know, that occurred before the general election was called and therefore spread their resources too thinly. And after all, they are quite thin resources, despite, you know, mm. your best efforts. I mean, understandably, you're, you know, you're squeezed in terms of mm. donations compared to the other two parties. And it is incredibly important that um, the Liberal Democrats, I think, don't um, run away with the idea that a by-election victory here or there should actually change the distribution of seats on which they choose to focus. I'm sure that you and Ed Davey won't make that mistake, but it is a mistake that potentially can be made. Yeah, I think it's probably five general elections in a row where, at least with hindsight, the Liberal Democrat targeting has been too ambitious. And perhaps one could say a degree of optimism as an essential attribute for a smaller party <laughs> <laughs> but it, that's definitely a really important factor. Yeah, and it's not just the Liberal Democrats that do it, right? I mean, if you look at 2019 and you look at where Jeremy Corbyn mm. was visiting, he was still visiting seats that the Labour Party was, you know, seriously hoping they were going to kind of win off the, the Conservatives compared to seats that, you know, they desperately needed to defend. Um, so there's always an extent to which, you know, that that optimism bias, as as you suggested, you know, kicks in, you know, irrespective of the party that you're looking at. But I think for a smaller party like the Liberal Democrats, you know, whose resources are stretched, you know, they have to be all the more careful that their, their targeting is accurate. If that's therefore the main word of caution that you would draw from Somerton and Froome and indeed all the by-elections in this parliament for the Lib Dems, What's the main sort of lesson you think we should take from these? I obviously have a whole load of lessons I could come up with from my insular perspective, but from your outside perspective, what do you think the main lesson should be for us? Oh, well, I mean, I guess, you know, marshal your resources. I would guess, you know, once again, you know, proof in some ways that Lib Dem activists do make a difference that, you know, those leaflets, although people complained about them, do count. That educating people as to who stands the best chance of winning in that particular constituency against the Conservatives, you mm. know, in the main, is incredibly important. And that that task really starts now because, you know, there's talk of a general election in the spring. I still think it'll be in the autumn. But, you know, any time you spend actually making people realise that you are the main challenger in that particular constituency is time well spent. Particularly given how many people don't know what the result was last time in their constituency yeah. and with new constituency boundaries, although the picture in most cases, again, will be pretty clear, that does add an extra extra note of, of potential yeah. confusion. Yeah. So I, I, I would boil your advice to the Lib Dems down to then being deliver more leaflets with bar charts on them, which sounds like... Perfect advice. Perfect <laughs> advice. <laughs> well, to be honest, Mark, you're not wrong. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, let's wrap up this show then. Uh, so people can find Tim on Twitter at Prof Tim Bale. 
You can find myself on Twitter at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast, or you can find me on threads at Mark Pack UK. Look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed. And if you like listening, do please tell others about this podcast. Thank you, everyone. Till next time. Thank you.